I stayed at my first job out of college for just three months. Then I was out of there. I was so excited to start a job just two days after I graduated. It was at a small magazine publishing company just 30 minutes from home. I was working as a content media specialist, writing blogs for the travel industry, and working on their annual magazine. But I was also commuting every day, had no windows in my office, and was already sick of a desk job. What brought me joy was journalism, working out in the field, interviewing new people every day, and covering any gaps I saw in the news. I was miserable at my job. Maybe part of it was grieving finishing college, and the other part being the reality of working a nine-to-five. Either way, I wasn't happy and knew I needed a change. My parents told me to wait it out. It was still a brand new job, and they told me I might learn to love it if I just give it a little longer. And that's how the world made me feel too. We're taught we're supposed to stay at a job for at least a year before we even consider applying elsewhere. But that just wasn't what I was going to do. Maybe that's because I'm a Gen Zer, or maybe it's just my attitude of taking the power and changing a situation I'm not happy with. I found myself on journalistjobs.com during the workday looking for the next job that would make me a little bit happier. I didn't care what people would think later on when they saw I only stayed at a job for a few months. To me, it's not about loyalty to a company. It's about making sure I'm working at a place that makes me happy. If we need to work every day, it ought to be at a place we look forward to going. I wasn't going to let this stay-for-one-year rule drag my disappointment in this job out any longer. A couple weeks later, I landed a job at a local newspaper in Newburgh, New York. There wasn't much of a pay raise, but it meant that I would be doing what I loved. I was back in action with journalism and kicked my career path off in a better direction. Fast forward to today, I've been at work life for over a year, the longest I've stayed at one place yet. For some, that might be reason for concern, but to me, that means I'm only going to stay in a position where I see growth and a future for my career. Once that stalls, or once I'm no longer happy and have exhausted ways to make it better, I will line up another job and move on. I don't give myself an ambiguous time frame to wait until that happens. Some employers might say that's a lack of loyalty, but it's actually a push for organizations to remember that if they look at employees as disposable, we can look at them the same way. Welcome to The Return, a work-life podcast from Digiday Media about what the return to the office looks like as we adapt to the new post-pandemic normal. I'm your host, Chloe Callahan a reporter at WorkLife where I cover how modern workplaces and workforces are changing across six core areas, culture, technology, talent, leadership, spaces, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. On this episode, we're talking about Gen Z workers' loyalty to their jobs. I describe myself as being on the more radical side of the spectrum, but there are plenty of others who may take a more cautious approach to switching jobs. This is how I got talking to Kyle Lawrence. He is someone who had high expectations for his first job and gave it a solid go before pivoting. Kyle went into his last semester of college in a pretty enviable position. Um, I was actually able to secure a job offer pretty early in the semester. So it was like November of 2019. 
which gave me a pretty good sense of security um, all the way through until like March 2020 when we really weren't sure if those jobs stood anymore. March 2020, we all know what happened. Kyle's school went remote and he had to do online classes. The job that was originally supposed to start in May got pushed to September. And then again to the following January. So for eight months, Kyle had to wait for this job to start. So during that time, the the thought of finding another job actually never went through my head. Um, and I think it was because I was reassured so many times that my employment was safe. And some conversations that I had with my parents and some other mentors in my life that, you know, reassured me, like, don't rush work. Work will come. You will always be working until you retire. And that's just kind of how they presented the idea to me. So I figured there's no rush. Um, just take it as it comes and just focus on what I can focus on. When that work finally did come, it wasn't quite what Kyle expected. So the the onboarding experience um, at my, my first employer was, I would say, one of the most weird experiences of my life. I was kind of baffled at the fact that this was like real. I was sent a laptop with an instruction packet and a charger, and that was it. Um, and I was, you know, went through the instruction packet and it was telling me how to turn on the laptop, open Outlook and set up my email and all those types of things. Um, and it just seemed like not real. I would say that's the best way to describe it. Um, was just a, a surreal experience, like things you would see on like a weird TV show that's like all sci-fi based was was kind of how it felt. Um, there was no human interaction to start. There was a sense of anxiety kind of just lingering with you the whole time of, am I doing something wrong? Should I be doing something more? Um, because we didn't have somebody to turn to that you could just tap on the shoulder and, and ask your question. Um, there was kind of a, a barrier between you and others where you're not sure if a manager or a senior manager is okay with you just reaching out to them randomly um, via you know Skype message or, or email. So I think onboarding in that medium was, was pretty difficult um, just because you felt like there's a, a wall between you and, and some of the people that know the answers to the questions you have. I would say I didn't meet um, anybody from my New York office until about eight months onto the job. My manager was in Colorado. One of them was in Michigan. So there really wasn't the opportunity to meet anybody in person. He was disappointed. It was a struggle to make connections with his manager in a fully remote environment. That's why after 14 months, he decided to leave that job. So the, the process came about, I would say, very accidentally. I was just hanging out with a few friends in the city and we were out to dinner and work came up and a few people were talking about the things they love, the things they don't love. And I was just complaining a bit about my network and how I don't really know anybody at work. And um, I just felt like the the social aspect of it that I think is really important just wasn't there for me. So um, one of my friends that works at the firm I work at now kind of heard me complaining and just was like, hey, why don't I refer you? Like, we have a really good thing going on over here and it's really social and young. And, you know, there's so many people in their 20s and in New York that work there. So um, why don't why don't you consider it? So I just figured I may as well try. Um, after multiple conversations with professionals 
in the new firm, I was definitely assured that I would have a really strong network right away. So I just felt that personally it was the right change to make. And I, I've definitely right away and still feel my my social battery growing and and kind of always being at 100%. So um, I, I think it was the right move. Kyle left because he didn't want a remote job that left him feeling disconnected from his colleagues. It's a perspective that we don't hear as often as people who leave in-person jobs for remote ones. When dating app Grindr mandated a return to office this past August, it led to the company losing nearly half its staff. And new survey results from Bankrate found that 42% of those who prefer fully remote over being fully in-person said they would be happy to change industries or jobs. It adds to the job-hopping trend, but for good reason. If you're hired as a remote worker and then asked to relocate near an office, it's a quick way to get people to look elsewhere. For Gen Zers, if you start working at a place out of college remotely and a year later they make in-office mandatory, they might too start looking for another job. There's this concept of quiet quitting. Quiet quitting. Quiet quitting. Quiet quitting. Quiet quitting made headlines this year thanks to Gen Z. It's the idea of no longer giving 110% at work, but just doing only what your job description says. It's acting your wage. It's reining things in if you feel like the work that you're doing isn't appreciated. But how does a Gen Zer make the decision to quiet quit? And how does that turn into actual quitting? Career coach Ricky Goldenberg has noticed two major trends when it comes to young workers. One is still wanting to understand what does good look like, right? This desire, similar to what I experienced when I was graduating from college, that I didn't really understand, like, how do I exist within the world? And with these individuals, it's the same, that it's sort of like, is this a good job? Is this what I want to spend my time doing? Um, There's a little bit more delineation between how much space should work take up in your life, uh, which I think is honestly awesome because – we're not great at that. Uh, the other the other trend that I have noticed is that because folks who are a little bit younger have more access and more comfort in finding information, there is also a desire in faster response, right? So like I grew up working with boomer bosses uh, and Gen X bosses who are basically like, oh, this is the way we do things and, you know, you just have to wait And a lot of expectations and sort of like fall in line. This is what I did. And so therefore you have to do it as well. And I think one of the awesome things about folks who are a little bit earlier in their career right now is that they don't have those same expectations and they challenge those expectations. Like, okay, so you did have to work 80, 100 hour work weeks. That was crazy. Why should I have to work that? Like, let's reassess what are the requirements of work. And to me, that is awesome and I love it. And that expectation of sort of let's challenge those assumptions and also let's have faster responses. You know, we're used to sort of hearing like, I want to get promoted. And they're like, well, you have to wait until the cycle, which is maybe next year. And you're, whereas some of the folks who are younger, like I should be promoted and like, let's just do that now. And I think that's an interesting challenge to organizations to figure out how to either manage expectations really well or mess with those expectations a little bit and take faster action and really listen to the folks that you're working with. These work trends that have gotten attributed to Gen Z aren't necessarily new to our generation. 
Quiet quitting is just doing the job you were hired for, pushing back against millennials' burnout. And that new job hopping that we're told makes young workers such a risk for employers? The U.S. government produced posters telling people, don't be a job hopper, stick to your job, during a labor shortage in 1944. I think there's a little bit of an expectation Like a continuation, honestly, of the American dream. The idea if you go and you get education, you're going to get a job and you're going to continue to have a job and you're going to do it until you're 65 when you retire and then you're going to enjoy your life then. And I think that each um, generation after that is starting to question that a little bit more, which this idea of how much does work have to play into who I am as an individual? How much time do I have to spend on work? Am I allowed to have other interests and values that exist without work being like the main forefront? And then also, what if I don't want to wait until 65 to enjoy my life? Like, how come I can't just enjoy it a little bit more now? And I think that 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 shifts each generation that you come earlier. Like, I think that my parents' generation, there's expectation that it's like you work hard and you don't have to like your job. You work in order to support your family. But, you know, we're slowly all working more and more. So either we should enjoy work more or we should figure out how to set boundaries with work so that we can go have a lot more fun outside of work. Pretend I'm a young person thinking about quitting my job or going through some sort of career change. How would a session look like with you? What would be some questions that you would ask me, I guess, to make sure it's what I want to do? Oh, this is such a good question. So the thing that's tricky here is that sometimes it's about the organization and sometimes it's about the individual. So sometimes when someone comes into a session, there's a lot of things to take into consideration when we're thinking about potentially leaving our job, which is one, is the job the problem, right? Sometimes the problem is us, let's be real. But it is important to recognize like, is this job quote unquote normal, right? I'm working crazy hours. I'm waking up at three o'clock in the morning, freaked out about work. I'm having a hard time sleeping. I can't disconnect from work. These kinds of things are really hard. And so usually first and foremost is to get a better understanding of what's happening at work and how much is that impacting the individual and if that's bearable or not bearable, right? Like we need to figure those kinds of things out. There's also going to be some talk around kind of what is that individual's desire? What's important to you? What are your values? What are your strengths? What do you want to spend your time doing? Are you in the right environment for that? Are you working with people that you enjoy working with on projects that you enjoy working on? Do you feel like you can see like potential growth? Do you have opportunities for autonomy? Are you being treated as an individual, right? All these kinds of things. So a lot of it is going to be first talking about like the company, the organization, the folks that you're working with, a little bit talking about yourself and what you want and what you desire, There's also, and the other thing that I always highlight in this space is that when we're looking to make a transition, also making sure that we're thinking about and planning for and managing our expectations because not that I'm risk averse, but more that we want to make sure we're making really informed decisions. I think that we as humans can be incredibly impulsive and we're like, I'm just going to quit. And it's like, it's like, let's first sort of see what's happening here and try a couple things that will make it a little bit more bearable, start to recognize what is unbearable. And if it's truly unbearable, then it's actually going to start talking about, well, what can we 
really do. Like for some people who have the financial means or privilege, some of them can actually just like leave a job without another job lined up. For some of us, that's not available. And so recognizing the very real constraints of our lives and working within those is incredibly important. Is there a certain time frame that you put on it? Are you like, okay, you should really like stick it out for X more months or stay at a job for a year before you make a decision? Are those things still real? So there's a couple of things there, which is one, I think it really depends on the situation. If you are in a situation that you are feeling completely exhausted, you cannot physically, mentally, emotionally handle what's happening with you, and you also have the financial means to step away, I mean, you got to do what's right for you, right? At the same time, that that exploration, sometimes through that work together, individuals will say, you know what? I can actually really make this work. It's just about figuring out how to communicate and manage expectations of the folks who are managing me or setting boundaries or actually creating more time to do things that I care about. And also you ask the question sort of like, do you have to stay for a certain amount of time? You know, I recently read that most people by the age of, what, 30, they've had 10 jobs. So no, I think that some organizations and some industries are going to penalize you for not having stayed for a certain period of time. Some organizations or and or industries like don't care. And so I think it's just recognizing that as well. I mean, you can, as long as there's a narrative there, as long as there's a story that we're able to tell about why we made the decisions and the transitions that we did. And we also know that we ourselves made a concerted effort to figure out how can I improve this situation for myself? No, there's no real rules, I don't think. It sounds like a lot of it is just kind of taking the time to figure out if there are things to change and then go from there. But we've seen like the trends of the rage applying, rage quitting and things like that. So I'm just curious what you think about things like that, where, you know, people are just so fed up. They're like, okay, I'm going to just go spend my day and apply to a bunch of jobs. You know, what do you think about things like that? Okay, firm believer that even if you're super happy in your job, you should actually be keeping an eye out for potential jobs. Like, even when you're in a good place, and what might happen is you apply for something and you interview, and either, great, we actually go work for that company and it was a fantastic fit for you, and or you discover, okay, I need to get better at XYZ if I want to work somewhere like that, or you're like, nah, I got a good here. So I actually, a rage applying, it gives you a sense of control. Like if you had a bad day at work and you want to start applying for jobs, listen, that's good. And that's going to make you feel good. Do it. And also on top of that, if you can go and have those conversations and potential interviews, it's going to help you either A, go get a new job that's aligned with you. B, figure out what you need to hone in on in terms of your skills and strengths so that you can be a better candidate in the future and or like take on specific projects at work, like stuff like that. Or C, you discover you actually really like your job where you are and you didn't even realize that until you sort of tested the waters. I think the only concern I have sometimes around it is if you're rage applying without taking that moment to stop and think about what's not working. If you're just like, somebody take me, You it sometimes turns into either a pendulum swing that you're like, this place is too buttoned up, so I'm going to go somewhere really loosey-goosey, and that might actually not be the, the issue that you're really facing. Or you sort of are just like throwing your name out there, and 
you might get wooed along, which is so dangerous. You get like wooed along into this other position. You get there and you're like, this actually isn't aligned with my values. So that's the only danger I see sometimes is when we're sort of in this like rage application mode that we're just like, it's like more, 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 more. You might run into a situation that suddenly you're in a new place and you're like, how did I get here though? Was this the right call? And so I do think it's really important to take that time and stop and think about, well, like what's not working? What is and isn't in my control? And what do I want if I shift and move somewhere else? Typically, as a generation, Gen Z isn't dedicated to a single employer at any given time. We at WorkLife have reported on the rise of polywork when someone holds multiple jobs. According to research from Kantar, the side hustle trend actually spans generations. 36% of millennials, 30% of Gen X, and 21% of boomers have at least two jobs. But Gen Z is the most active group, with 40% having two or more roles. And that's a figure that suggests that quiet quitting is no more than the need to be at their next job on time. Let's hear from someone who does the multiple job juggle. My name is Julie Pomerejo. I am 24 years old. I graduated in May 2020, uh, fun year. And I my current I actually currently have four jobs. But my full-time Monday to Friday job is uh, I am a account executive sourcing and product development um, for a big marketing agency. Julie has had, honestly, I don't even know how many jobs since she graduated from college. She has experienced a toxic work culture at one place of employment, been unfairly paid at another, and was laid off at a third. In between all of that, she's held what she calls survival jobs that time in my life when I was working survival jobs, it was the happiest time in my adult life, I would say now still, because that's when I had time for the first time in that year plus of working. Uh, Cause I was working like, oh, like I was, sometimes I was working 70 hours a week with all the things I was doing to try to get a new position. And then all of a sudden I had like Tuesday off or a Wednesday off um, because it was working at coffee shops and the shifts were maybe like just six hours. And I discovered sunrise hikes or I discovered like actually seeing the Hudson Valley, finally viewing the whole area that I was paying to live in. And I felt like that was the first time and still um, to this day, the, the only time that I truly just sat back and enjoyed my life while still being able to cover my rent. Because even in cash tips alone, I was able to pay rent. So I didn't stress about money either. And that was really wonderful. So I actually really recommend that if you're miserable in your job post-grad, don't, don't think about the titles of it and take a break if you're able to and work at a job that you would have enjoyed if you were, let's say, in high school and just do it now if you're physically able to and and then prioritize your free time to do things that you, to form hobbies that you never would otherwise. Um, So it was mentally very healing for me to actually have that experience. Right now, Julie is working four jobs. In addition to her nine to five as an account executive for a marketing agency, she's a cater waiter, coffee shop barista, and runs her own event planning business called Julie's Girls Club, where she puts on two events a month. The benefits? Diversifying her skill set by learning from multiple different bosses and practicing time management. I think that it's quite uh, impressive to also show your time management skills to be able to actually handle all of those things and also a thriving social life because 
I do often get the comment of how do you even have a life if you work multiple jobs? And I think that you should just put 100% into what you do at that time and make sure to like time block it so that you're 100% present with, okay, this is for um, like, you know, this is for this job, this is for that job, this is for, let's say, a girlfriend. Because also when I was working three jobs, I also had a girlfriend and she would she had the one job and she would be like, how do you, we spend the same amount of time together, but you get so much more done. And I'm like, I just prioritize, right? And compartmentalize better than you. While Julie has been able to compartmentalize better than others, it doesn't mean it hasn't been an issue for employers. She's been let go of jobs in the past because of her decision to prioritize other jobs. And she's not alone. For example, last year, credit reporting service Equifax fired 24 of their employees for working two jobs. It is definitely um, a catch-22. It is when you have multiple different priorities and you have to be split. And so answering the question of what do you do when your employers notice this and they get upset, I think that's when communication comes into play where you have to be honest with them about when I got my next um, coffee shop job while I was already having that full-time marketing job, I told them right off the bat from the first phone call that my availability was only weekends because I do work full-time Monday to Friday for another job. So they already had that expectation that that's what I could work. So they never had a problem with me only being able to fill their weekend availability. What do you do if you have a lot of jobs in your resume? Does that look like a red flag? My answer to that is do not put it on your resume. So I never, never have I had um, my cater waitering jobs or um, my coffee job jobs on my resume um, because I feel like they're not at all uh, associated with my full-time work is what my career path is. And so I never put them on. I did put Julie's Girls Club on my resume, but that's because it is um, has a lot of skills with event planning, association, and marketing. So it's tied in very nicely to the field that I'm currently in. So I do have that. I have four jobs um, missing from my resume in the past year and a half that I've actually done, just to keep it from the confusion. Job hopping to increase salary and skills early in a career appears to be increasingly common. 22% of workers aged 20 and older spent a year or less at their jobs in 2022. That's the highest percentage with a tenure that short since 2006, according to data from the Employee Benefit Research Institute. About 33% spent two years or less at their jobs. But many Gen Z workers aren't worried about the stigma. 74% of 18- to 26-year-olds were searching for a new job or plan to search in the next six months, according to a survey of U.S. employees conducted by human resources consultancy Robert Half. Gen Zers having short stays at a job doesn't need to be the reality for all employers, though. I think about how this is the longest I've ever been at one company, and I know that's thanks to perks like being fully remote, fair compensation, and having career growth and development. Here's career coach Ricky Goldenberg again. I think that loyalty, similar to trust, is earned. As someone who's earlier in your career, when you're at that company in that role, do you feel like you have people that are advocating for you? Do you feel like you have autonomy and the ability to do your work in a way that feels good and that you have control over it? Do you feel like you're being challenged and there's like opportunities for growth 
whether by your mentor or manager is recognizing those opportunities or you're recognizing it and requesting it and having it become available. And do you feel like the work that you're doing on a day in, day out is like within your capacity but has this like level of effort, then it's probably a pretty good company, right? Like in that situation, it's demonstrating that they're putting effort and energy into you. You're able to work in a way that feels really good. The way I think about it is that loyalty goes both ways. If the organization is recognizing you, supporting you, giving you space to get your work done, they have advocates for you, they're paying you appropriately, you can see areas for growth. Like you can almost, you look around you and you look not just at your manager, but like your manager's manager and you're like, I like what's going on there. Then it makes more sense to create more loyalty within the organization and establish yourself there. If you look around and you're like, I do not like what that looks like, then the priority shift, it should shift more into what can I learn here? What stories can I create? What challenges can I take on that will help me in my potential future position? This season on The Return, we will look at how Gen Zers' attitudes have changed the workforce. Next week, we'll talk about the flip side of this, how Gen Z has quickly risen to leadership positions and what it's like for them to have a say over people who are older than them in the workplace. This is your host, Chloe Callahan. Until next time. The Return is brought to you by Digiday Media. This podcast was written and reported by me, Chloe Callahan, and produced and edited by Sarah Patterson.